Hey guys, my name is Matthew Delaney. I'm an emergency physician at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and this is a special edition from the JSEP Open, the Journal of the American College of Emergency Physicians, which is the premier open access journal in emergency medicine. We're a new journal, and we'd had a podcast in the works to accompany each issue, but sometimes timeframes speed up and things change. And we thought it was important to get the most up-to-date news out as soon as we could about coronavirus, looking at where did we come from, where are we now, and where do we think this might go? There are three papers just out in JSEP Open that I think give us some insight into these questions. The first paper by Dr. Christopher Green et al. is Coronavirus Disease 2019, International Public Health Considerations. Second paper by Sarah Mer Sanchez is The Indispensable Role of Emergency Medicine in National Preparedness for High Consequence of Infectious Diseases. And the final paper by Jane Yee et al. is Novel Coronavirus 2019, Emergence and Implications for Emergency Care. All of these will be linked in the show notes. And the beauty of open access is they're there. You can read them. You can send them to your friends. They're for the world to share. At this point, I think it's very clear that essentially everyone in the world has heard of coronavirus or COVID or COVID-19, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But how did we get here? Where did this come from? I promise to stay light on the microbiology here, but coronaviruses are a category of viruses, and really there have only been about six or seven that have been identified in humans. When you look at the current coronavirus, it fits in the family of beta coronaviruses, which does matter because when we look at other beta coronaviruses, two big ones jump to the forefront. There's SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which started in the Pearl River Delta of China and ran from 2002 to 2004. And there's MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, thought to come out of Saudi Arabia, and that was 2012 to 2016. We'll talk about the similarities and differences of these other coronaviruses in a little bit, but they have a lot in common in terms of origin. They're thought to all have a reservoir, and the host is thought to be a bat. Now, SARS was linked to a civet, MERS was linked to a camel, and we're still not quite sure where the current COVID-19 came from. But it's thought that these viruses live in a bat, then there's some intermediate host, some other animal, and then there's zoonotic transmission to humans. This current outbreak has really come on kind of fast and furious, and Back in December, on the 27th of 2019, three adult patients in Wuhan, China, in the Hubei province, showed up with pneumonia. There was a 49-year-old woman, a 61-year-old man, and a 32-year-old man. Now, the, the links, the woman was a known retailer to seafood market. And if you've ever been to China, there are wet markets. They have fish, live fish, dead fish. There are other animals, and there are mammals oftentimes there. So she worked in this setting. The older man was known to be a frequent visitor to this market. And then the third patient, they, they really still haven't figured out how that patient tied in in terms of potential exposure to people from the market or the market itself. The doctors were a little bit puzzled, but there's a little flavor of SARS in terms of how they presented and these lower respiratory infections that they presented with. So they started to test for other potential coronaviruses, and that's where they found this novel coronavirus that we now know as COVID-19. After those first three cases, there was a significant increase in the number of folks showing up with similar presentation. 
And in late December, on December 31st, China actually reported to the World Health Organization that, hey, we have this cluster of, at that point, about 27 cases, no deaths. And they said, hey, there, there may be a problem here. It actually took another week. It wasn't until January 7th until the new virus was actually identified. But to the Chinese government's credit, they, they acted pretty quickly. This was around the time of the Chinese Lunar New Year, which is a huge holiday in China involving millions and millions of people traveling all over the country. And the Chinese government started to really restrict travel. They essentially locked down Wuhan and the Hubei province. But they recognized there's a problem here. We need to try to contain this. Now, this is a very different response than we've seen historically. SARS back in 2002 started in southern China. And it took several months and several deaths and hundreds more cases before the Chinese government at that point notified the World Health Organization. So out of the gate with this outbreak, there was an initial recognition that, hey, things are off track. Something new is going on here. And the government immediately tried to limit the spread of the disease. By January 13th, we get the first report of a case outside of China. This was in Thailand in a patient who had traveled to Wuhan. And more cases start to pop up. There are cases that appear in Japan in mid-January. We start to see cases farther and farther outside of Asia. January 30th, the World Health Organization declares that this is a global health emergency. And worldwide, there are various forms of quarantine, travel restrictions, travel limitations, you know, unprecedented response. And to date, on February 28th, there are over 84,000 cases worldwide. There are almost 3,000 deaths. So what starts with a couple of folks at a market in Wuhan in December now has become more widespread and with a higher total number of deaths than we saw with SARS or MERS. That's where we came from. And the unfortunate reality is that despite efforts to contain this, it's not clear that that's going to be the viable strategy. So where are we now? So just looking at this as a disease, how are patients going to present if they potentially have coronavirus? Yi et al. have a really nice summary in their paper in terms of what are patients complaining of when they show up with coronavirus. The vast majority, 80 to 98% had fever, most had cough, and about a third had shortness of breath. And that makes sense. This typically affects the lower respiratory tract. So we're thinking pneumonia. A minor subset had rhinorrhea, myalgias, headache, kind of the stuff we typically think of with influenza. So generally, this is going to be a cough fever type presentation. In a paper just out from the Lancet Infectious Diseases, she et al. found that in admitted patients with coronavirus, when they had chest CT imaging, even in mildly symptomatic patients, typically early in the course, they'd have focal unilateral or diffuse ground glass opacities that over the course of one to three weeks would progress to consolidation, kind of the typical pneumonia we'd think. In China, in the initial subset of patients, about 32% of patients were admitted to the ICU. The main indication there was for increased oxygen support. Now, most of those patients actually just needed nasal cannula with only about 10% of patients needing to be mechanically ventilated and less than 5% ended up going to ECMO. So, a lot of folks got put in the ICU relative to other diseases, but they didn't necessarily use all the resources we think of when we think ICU level of care. Inevitably, as this spreads, we will get additional reports and more granular details about who shows up with this, how do these patients do, what do we need to do for these patients. But right now, because this has been 
going on the longest and spread the most within China, that's the data that we have available. And I have no doubt that that information will be coming because this disease is not slowing down. So that's where we came from. That's what we know today. Where are we going with this? What, what is this going to look like as we go forward in the weeks, months, and potentially years that follow? Thinking about the potential impacts of this, I kind of think of it in two different categories. There are the medical implications. What's this going to do from a disease standpoint? And then also the societal implications. Obviously, this is going to cause huge disruptions. It already has caused huge disruptions with efforts to contain it, which is the sheer number of people that are sick in China. And that's where these three papers, I think, give us some really helpful information to think through this two-pronged impact that we're going to face. On the medical side, Dr. Green walks us through a couple of terms which are really helpful when we talk about how bad a pandemic or the spread of disease is going to be. One of these terms is R0, which is R with a small zero. And this is a mathematical term that tells us how contagious an infectious disease is. It's also called the reproduction number. As an infection spreads to new people, it's reproducing. And so the number tells us the average number of people who will catch a disease from one contagious person. So an R naught of one means if I've got it, on average, one person's gonna get sick. The numbers are a little bit in flux just because this is a dynamic process, but for COVID-19, the current coronavirus, we think the R naught is probably somewhere around 2.2. When we look at other things, the SARS outbreak, the R naught is three. MERS, it's ranged from 1.9 to 3.9. The normal seasonal influenza is is 0.9 to 2.1. And when we think of a really bad flu or horrible flu, like the 1918 pandemic flu, the R-naught was as high as 2.8. So this R-naught that we're dealing with or the potential for someone to infect someone else is at or above what we're expecting normally with influenza. It's hard to nail down the R-naught for a couple of reasons. One is that we're not exactly sure how this is transmitted. So we think that this is going to be by respiratory droplets. The best information points us to that direction. So if someone coughs or sneezes, and that's what we see with influenza. The other thing is we know that we're likely getting fomite to face contact. So if I touch somewhere that someone has sneezed, I get that droplet, I touch my face, I can get it that way. But we're starting to get reports of asymptomatic transmission where we just, we don't know. They weren't necessarily exposed to someone. They don't necessarily have a travel history. So when we're looking to really nail down how contagious is this, we need better information in terms of exactly how this is transmitted. The other part of that is that in addition to how it's transmitted, we need to know who is transmitting this and when are they potentially infecting other folks. And that's what's really tricky here. So we're seeing an increasing number of folks who are asymptomatic who when tested test positive for coronavirus. What that would suggest is that if you got the virus and you're not symptomatic, you're still at risk of spreading this to other folks. I think of it this way. Say I go to Wuhan, China, I come back. I'm feeling fine, but actually I have coronavirus and I don't know. I'm asymptomatic. And I decide I want to go downtown, so I get on a bus. And the next guy that gets on the bus also came back from Wuhan, and he feels horrible. He thinks he's got a pneumonia, he's got a fever, he's tachycardic. He's actually taking the bus to the hospital. So there are now two of us on the bus, and then eight more folks get on. Two weeks later, four of the people that got on that bus are now diagnosed with coronavirus. Now, 
I never knew I had it. I was just an asymptomatic guy with the virus. So to look at these four people that got sick from one person with known coronavirus, we'd say the R naught is four, which would be a really high bad number. But if we're really getting a good grasp on who potentially has coronavirus, then we can really get the details to say, no, the R naught is probably closer to two because I could have been an asymptomatic transmitter. So when we look to where this could go, transmission and R naught is a really important piece that we just can't answer right now because we just don't know how many folks could have the virus, could be spreading the virus, but they're not showing symptoms. We may never know that they actually were the ones spreading this around. The other important piece to really get in our minds around where this is going is looking at the morbidity and mortality that's associated with people who get this disease. And again, there are some major question marks here in terms of the accuracy or validity of the data we're getting. There was a paper out in February by Wu et al. just came out the last week of February that looked at this initial outbreak out of Wuhan. And it gives us some clues here. So they report over 72,000 total cases. When it comes to who's getting this, young people seem to be doing well. 1% of cases were less than 10, 1% were 10 to 19, and only 8% were 20 to 29. Now, when you get 30 to 79 years old, which is a broad range, that's where 87% of the cases occurred, and then over 80 amounted for about 3% of the cases. In terms of the severity of disease, 81% of the cases were categorized as mild, 14% were severe, and five were considered to be critical. The authors give us an overall case fatality rate, CFR, which is, again, really just looking at, if I get this, how bad is this? So we have how contagious is this? And then how worried should we be if we get this? And their overall rate was listed at 2.3%, which is in line with other estimates and reports that we're seeing. But who you were and what historically was wrong with you when you got this led to a lot of variation in terms of the case fatality rate. There were no deaths under the age of nine. So the case fatality rate there is zero. But if you were 70 to 79, the case fatality rate goes up to 8%. And then if you were over 80, it was reported at 14.8%. So who you are determines really where your case fatality rate is going to fall. And also intuitively, the severity of your illness plays into that. So in that subset of patients with critical cases, the case fatality rate was 49%. But when you put all of these groups together, age, comorbid conditions, severity of illness, your case fatality rate is somewhere between two and three, both from this study and from multiple other attempts to quantify this. And that's not a great number. If we look, the seasonal influenza case fatality rate is 0.05% in the US. When we look at other coronavirus outbreaks, SARS had a case fatality rate of eight. MERS was a bad player with a case fatality rate of 34. And that 1918 pandemic flu had a case fatality rate of 10. So what it seems like from the available data is that we've got a virus that is more contagious than previous coronaviruses, but possibly has a lower case fatality rate, and specifically in young, otherwise healthy patients. Like we saw with the R0, or the ability for this virus to replicate, the potential asymptomatic patient could really change these numbers dramatically. So think about it this way. There could be millions and millions and millions of people in China in Italy, in South Korea, who have coronavirus, who have very mild symptoms. They may just think they have a cold. They may be totally asymptomatic. And 
the only cases that are being tested for and that we're really capturing are the severe cases or patients who are symptomatic. And so if we put in these hundreds of thousands of potential mild or asymptomatic cases with the cases that we know that end up in the hospital, that end up dying, suddenly that case fatality rate goes way down because really we're just expanding the denominator. And this is probably the single biggest unknown in terms of what will the medical impact be for this worldwide. So we take something like influenza. We know that it's fairly contagious, but we know that most people who get influenza are not going to die. Seasonal influenza has a case fatality rate of 0.05%. So we know that coronavirus is very contagious, that it's clearly spreading well, but we don't know what that ultimate case fatality rate will settle out as. And so if it stays at two or three, that could be really, really bad worldwide. But if there are a lot of folks who get this, who don't have symptoms, who don't have adverse outcomes, then we're probably going to be dealing with something that has morbidity and mortality similar to what we see with influenza each year. Right now, in late February, in the U.S. where I work, testing for this is a bear. There's a case out of California where it took several days, even after the clinicians had a suspicion that this could be COVID-19, before they were able to get the patient tested and confirmed that that's what was going on with the patient. Obviously, everyone wants a better testing strategy, but we're limited. We really don't know how prevalent this is. We really don't know how severe it is because we just don't have a great way to identify everybody who's acquired coronavirus. The impact here is potentially going to be huge from a system standpoint. Or What does this do to society? Dr. Green walks through a really good breakdown of what we've seen in previous epidemics in his paper he brings up where if we have a pandemic, if we have widespread transmission, like we're seeing in China, like we're seeing in South Korea, folks are likely to rush to hospitals and overwhelm available resources. And this can certainly have downstream sequela. He points to what happened during the Ebola epidemic in West Africa in 2014 to 2015, where in Liberia, in Sierra Leone, in Guinea, folks were unable to get good care for their HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, kind of the common things you do for hospitals. And they thought that this reduction in services actually caused an additional 10,000 people to die because they just couldn't get the healthcare they need because the system was overwhelmed by this pandemic. In 2009, in the U.S., when we had an H1N1 influenza pandemic, U.S.-based EDs saw a huge surge in patient volumes, and folks actually saw increased inpatient deaths from strokes and heart attacks during that time period. And it was thought maybe that's due to the fact that the system is just pushed at or past its breaking point. And the longer this goes on, and the more morbidity and mortality we see with cases, the higher the potential to disrupt society in really profound ways. If folks are getting sick and folks are highly contagious, who's going to show up for work? Is somebody going to bring food to the grocery store? Is there going to be gas at the gas station? It's easy to jump to this doomsday type scenario, but as we get clearer data in terms of who's infected and what happens to folks when they get infected, again, looking at the case fatality rate, looking at the R naught, we'll be able to better estimate really what this could do to society worldwide. For us in the emergency department, it's a little tricky in terms of what we're supposed to do now, especially in the U.S., you know, that typical framework that was developed within emergency medicine and has been endorsed by the CDC points us towards identify, isolate cases, and then inform, let the public know, let patients know what's going on. Again, lack of testing makes the identify piece difficult. The isolate piece 
I think we're all working on this. CDC is working on this. I would expect most of us at a hospital level are coming up with plans of how will we isolate patients. And even though we don't have a great test, now is the time to work on what are we going to do when this shows up. Historically, we are not good at this. In 2014, two nurses were infected with Ebola due to some kind of breakdowns in that isolate pathway. In South Korea, there were 82 confirmed cases of MERS from one single patient in the emergency department who wasn't known to have the disease at that time. And more recently, a study looking at 49 different New York emergency departments found that when we were trying to do personal protective equipment and isolation as clinicians, we only did it right about 80% of the time. So talk to your colleagues at work, figure out what you're going to do in your shop when this shows up so that you'll be ready. Like we said before, this is a very dynamic disease. Things are changing and inevitably by the time you hear this, the information will have shifted a little bit. But I think the key things to watch are going to be Will this novel coronavirus act like other major pandemics that we've seen? We need to watch that R naught and really try to nail down how transmissible this is. We want to watch for the case fatality rate and see what is the real morbidity and mortality associated with this. And then as testing gets better, as those numbers become more granular, then I think we can really fine tune what should our appropriate response be at a local, regional, and kind of worldwide level. Stay tuned. When we get updates, we will bring them to you. To read these articles, go to www.jacepopen.com. And if you've got questions, comments, feedback, you can find us on Twitter at jacepopen. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.